Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cody Krillin Calvet podcast episode. I don't know what episode this is. I think it's 10. Sorry, guys. Uh, this episode is sponsored by me. Um, I, I'm trying to hire some vets right now, so I'll just lay it on thick with you guys. My Calvet practice, so Vetegra Health Services in Airdrie, Alberta, is hiring a seventh beef cattle veterinarian. So if you would like to apply for basically my job if you guys watch the videos you know exactly what i do that's my practice please send me an email to cody at cody that would be very lovely yeah we've been enjoying some really good success at the practice and we're just ever growing uh when i came on to vet agri health services in 2011 there was three vets and i was the fourth so yeah we're doing good we're actually eight that, that would make us eight vets if we included our dairy vet. But remember, we never talk about our dairy vet. Sorry, Bruce. Uh, I'm also looking to hire some other vets as well. So Mosaic Veterinary Partners, my practice buying group, is also hiring a mixed animal veterinarian. So that would be the preference as a mixed animal veterinarian because they're mixed practices. But I think we would also entertain some experienced veterinarians that were like a straight-up horse vet or small animal vet or straight-up cow vet. Maybe. It depends on you. You convince me. Uh, the, one of the practices is in High Prairie, Alberta. So this is a really beautiful area in northern Alberta. They have a significant beef cattle component, lots of big herds, uh, really amazing producers, so a very good opportunity. And we're also uh, looking for prospective hires at our Fairview Veterinary Practice as well. So if you're interested in learning more, certainly reach out to me, Cody at CodyKrillman.com, and I'll be able to send you on some more information and um, maybe our human resource director, Becky, will also get in touch with you too. And then I have another practice that I can't say where that is yet. The paperwork is just being finalized right now. What day is it? I'll be able to announce in like five days. And we could potentially also hire there as well. So overall around like four vets, we could, we could take four vets. New grads or fourth years right now, if you're a vet student and you are interested in maybe just kind of getting your resume in there, just kind of getting in the chain of seeing what potential opportunities would come up, we are already in conversations and negotiations with current fourth years to potentially, not potentially, that are coming up to fill some of these spots. So fourth years, if you're in the U.S., if you're from an accredited vet school, if you're from Canada, we would love to hear from you. We'd just like to know kind of who you are and what type of practice that you're looking for and see if we potentially have a spot. Okay, that's it for the advertisement. It's not a real advertisement. I didn't pay myself anything for that one. This week, I went to, well, it's kind of a busy week. 
So we're running an advanced beef health rotation at our practice. We have three vet students from the University of Calgary that are with us for a new rotation that we're putting on. So we decided to put together a, a very advanced rotation. So most of our rotations, it would just be students following us around and we would just be showing them the variety of different things that we do. They'd learn postmortems and how to preg test and how to semen test. This one was, was hands-on to an extent, but much more lecture-based. We brought in an, a bunch of guest speakers. We took them out to a bunch of farms, lots of tours, very integrated for kind of that next level CalVet student. So it went really, really well. We have one more day left. Tomorrow we will be talking about integrated pest management, like parasite management. We will be talking about uh, marketing cattle. So I have one of my feed yard operators coming in and he's going to talk all about closeouts and how he markets cattle. And then I'm going to be doing a remote drug delivery wet lab where we're going to go out to my farm and shoot dart guns. Mm -hmm. I'm going to video that. It will be a pretty special little video. And then we will end the day with a, a talk with... It's like a pharmaceutical guy. He's like a mad scientist and he owns a pharma company and he's a chemist and he's a veterinarian. He's going to talk to the students about anti-inflammatories and some other pharmaceutical related things. So yeah, it's a very fun, action-packed week. This past weekend, like just a few days ago, I was at MIT. So the Massachusetts, I don't even know how to say that word, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was uh, part of that New Harvest conference, New Harvest 2018 conference, that revolved around cellular agriculture. And it was a phenomenal experience. So that's what this podcast is about, just kind of me talking about the things that I saw, the lessons that I learned, and where we're going to be potentially going from there in terms of the future of the agriculture industry. So first off, I just want to say like Boston and Massachusetts, Boston and Cambridge, I'm like the worst Canadian. Boston and Cambridge were phenomenal cities. When I was walking through the MIT campus, I just remember thinking like, I have a re restored sense of, or faith, a restored faith in humanity because the amount of brain trust at that campus was phenomenal. Like, I feel like any issue that could ever crop up in the future of human civilization could just be solved at MIT. They'll just turn the nerds loose on the problem. They're just like, nerd, answer. So smart. I I walked by a building and the building had a plaque on it and said, this was the place that the first long distance phone call was ever placed between Alexander Graham Bell and yakety yak professor from Cambridge. Like the first long distance phone call, just like mind blowing. Mm, what else? I guess just in terms of the campus, beautiful campus, so many smart people. I met more like PhDs and Harvard trained MBAs and lawyers that are like 
three years old and not practicing law anymore because they're involved in like venture capital or they're running uh, their own company is just there were some really smart people there so i showed up in my cowboy boots my cowboy belt my cowboy belt and i was going to uh, engage with these brilliant people the conference was in the MIT Media Lab, so this is part of the MIT School of Architecture and Design. Uh, the Media Lab is fairly famous just in terms of how, I think, like outside of the box and integrative they think. So from what I can garner, they look at design much more holistically and and can be applied to a variety of different applications and just like building a building or building a microchip like they put their design systems or try to apply their design systems into many different walks of life like MIT even had an agriculture division like how come I did not know about that when I was an undergrad and knew that there was an MIT agriculture division no idea that one is called the MIT open egg initiative so essentially they have a bunch of systems engineers design people people that are involved with the agriculture community all working on open source agriculture products so for example one of the projects that they worked on was taking uh, a bunch of design uh, systems and putting that together to have this module that you could build. They pre-populated like Alibaba carts and Amazon carts and you could purchase all this equipment and you had access to integrate them all together and connect them to this this platform that allows producers, farmers from across the globe to collect data and then use that data to help them make different types of decisions. Amazing. The things and the people, I think just in general, just to like wrap your head around the, the types of, of amazing technologies that they were, that was being applied at the new harvest conference was, uh, as diverse as you could ever imagine. I saw a chair that was grown from mushrooms. So like a mycelium chair, like a lounge chair that was grown in nine days. I saw a spinach that was de piece of spinach, like a from Subway. They said it was from Subway. They decellularized it with detergent, and they put endothelial cells into it, like the what the cells that line your blood vessels, and then they were able to pump blood through spinach. They also did it with broccoli, and like they did, they did it with a whole bunch of different plants. I saw the ability to use like a laser printer to print out a piece of muscle. So you put cartridges with nerve cells and fat cells and uh, muscle stem cells all together. And then you can just print out your layered muscle. That was pretty amazing. There was a company that was really focused on design around flavors. So they had the ability to use different uh, natural smells, aromas found, uh, found in nature and combine them together to give you things like roast chicken smell or fried chicken smell. I think they said they had like 200 different smells of, of chicken. They had a chicken flavored gum. 
and that was interesting. There was a company there that worked a lot with algae, so taking uh, specific strains of algae and being able to grow them into a highly nutritious food source for people. A lot of different meat startup companies, some that had products to, um, you know, development stage and others that were just kind of in that design stage uh, as to them figuring out what they wanted. So companies like Finless Foods, who's looking at creating seafood uh, from from lab culture, uh, so cultured meat, tuna. There was a company who wanted to make pork sausage. There was a company that wanted to make steak. There was a company that wanted to make um, meat snacks. So kind of disrupt the jerky market initially. Just a whole bunch of different things and people that, that I came across. Uh, the, the speaker docket was also phenomenal. I got to meet some really amazing individuals there. Uh, one notable figure was Jack Bobo. He was like the, I think he was like the chief communications officer for Intrexon. So Intrexon is basically the most interesting company you've never heard of. They are the ones that are responsible for like that Arctic apple, the never browning GMO apple, or the, what's it called, aqua bounty salmon. So the salmon that grows like, insanely fast and it is available to market in Canada so you can buy this GMO salmon in the marketplace in Canada since like last year and he was just a fascinating individual I'll share a fun fact with you guys about Jack so Jack is very much supportive of technology uh, very much supportive of agriculture very much recognizes that agriculture is imperfect and there is certainly uh, large impacts that the world has on feeding itself. There, I don't think anybody questions that. It takes a massive amount of resources for us to be able to feed the human populace. Uh, he had this amazing sort of predictive model. So he asked me, what do you think the population is going to be in the year 2300, Cody? Now, I know from all of the like rhetoric we see on the media that the the 9 billion number is quite important. I see that all the time. We have this Feed the Nine initiative by 2050. There will be 9 billion people. So my, that was my answer. By 2300, I thought, like, well, hopefully we don't have more than 9 billion. Hopefully it levels out at the very least. He said, no. I'm like, okay not the right answer so he said based off his predictive models uh, one of the country's population growth curves that he used was germany so as the the rest of the world becomes more developed more educated more technology surrounding uh, contraceptives if you follow some of the predictive models the earth's population in the year 2300 will be 3.5 billion people almost a third less than what it will peak out at. I think that's just like such a fascinating concept to, to think about when we're thinking about feeding the world. So it's, it's not really sexy in the news media for them to, to talk about that number, right? Talking about the 9 billion by 2050, that's like a really exciting gets the, the panic bit panic button hit makes people worry causes people to share news stories I'm, in general I'm fairly anti-media because I think they're super manipulative so they love talking about that 9 billion number but they never talk about past that and 
I, I believe Jack's models could potentially be right. And it makes you start thinking about all the systems that we're putting in place. And, and Jack was towing the line that, yes, agriculture does have a significant impact in terms of, of our global resources, but it is also the best that it has ever been meaning that we've made significant advancements to be able to efficiently feed people. The amount of water resources required, the amount of inputs required to produce a single steak has decreased dramatically in the, in the last 30 years. So it is the best that it has ever been, and he also says that it's also the worst that it's ever been, that, that at this point of feeding this large population, as our population pressures decrease, then we'll be able to scale back and getting ever efficient and not put as much strain on the resources we have available to feed the world. I love it. I love thinking about that. I, that was so incredibly eye-opening for me to to recognize that it's not just going to be this mad race to just keep feeding more and more people over and over again. And how are you ever going to figure that out? You just need to make it work in the in the medium term to do the best that we can in the medium term. And in in 300 years, we're going to not have so much pressures on it. Plus, we're going to have all that amazing technology as well. So I thought that was really interesting of a, of a concept to think about. Overall, I kind of came away with, with a few different things. So I learned about so many different new technologies that I had no idea that existed. So the ability to get... Uh, bovine embryonic stem cells is now mainstream. The ability to, like I said, decellularize um, spinach leaves. The ability to create this really high energy or very nutritious algae sources. The ability to create things out of mycelium. The ability to print tissues. The ability to create meat in, in vats. The ability for us to create amino acids and enzymes and all of this amazing technology was just completely fascinating to me. I learned about genome sequencers uh, that are extremely cost of cost effective to use. I learned about how easy it is to create uh, antibodies using this types of this type of technology that is actually relatively simple for you to create a, like an IgG antibody. Uh, the ability to create skin. One doctor came up to me and he's like, hey, do cows ever get cut? Because I can just grow skin and you don't need to suture them up anymore. You can just slap my synthetic skin onto them. I'm like, okay, yep, I got a use for that. So, so many different things, so many different technologies. So then it was my turn to speak. And after hearing everybody and I went out to supper with people and networked and met a lot of fascinating individuals. And before my talk, I recognized that there was kind of two camps. So the first camp were very much pro-animal agriculture. Not so much in, in the sense of, of pro-animal agriculture in the way that I'm pro-animal agriculture, but pro-animal agriculture in, in that they they recognize that it has a necessity within the system of feeding people. They recognize that there's a lot of amazing individuals within that system that are trying really, really hard to create a wholesome product and, and using all of the available efficiencies and technologies that they have at their disposal. 
but they are just truly passionate about the overall technology of cellular agriculture. Like they just love that. They love the design. They love the systems. They love the engineering. And there's no sort of moral or ethical grounds for their decision to enter into this space. They're just passionate about that space. And then there's the other camp who have become passionate about that space because of their ethical and moral dilemma. So extremely brilliant people who think very negatively of animal agriculture, that the reason for them to pursue such a space is is based off of those morals and ethics, that they want to start up a company that is impactful and has a positive effect in decreasing animal suffering and the environmental impacts that animal agriculture has. So I don't... I guess I don't argue or fret over somebody's moral or ethical dilemmas because certainly I have my own moral and ethics and that's going to be different than somebody else. The only thing that I worry about, and I started calling these people the hopscotchers. So the hopscotchers who want to create this technology and their desire in creation of the technology and the creation of companies, the, their purpose is to eliminate animal agriculture. They think that it is terrible. And you guys know my stance on it. There is never a time that you'll hear me say that animal agriculture is perfect. Uh, but I do always argue that we strive every single day to try to make it better. The new technologies that we put in place, the amount of resources we put into it, the amount of training and consulting that I do on a daily basis, I try to make it better every single day. But these hopscotchers, they want to implement all of this technology and disrupt the industry completely based off of those morals and ethics. And I think they're missing the boat because... If their true desire is to is to improve animal health and welfare and to reduce the overall environmental impacts that animal agriculture has, then there is so many damn opportunities within the industry with the application of these technologies where we could do this together. The individual applications that could be put forth for solving all of the different challenges that we have within this industry could have real world short, medium and long term impacts in all of the things that these hopscotchers are fighting against. Right. If they are truly worried about animal health and welfare they can make a significant impact in improving that through the implementation of these technologies. It seemed like every company that I interacted with, I could find a case use example where I could apply that technology into the animal current animal agriculture system and be able to have a real world positive outcome, the ability to produce higher quality product, the ability to produce more affordable, longer reaching product, the ability to reduce overall mortality or morbidity. I'll give you an example. So one example was colostrum. 
I was talking to this person who had absolutely no idea that calves needed colostrum in order for them to have a, an established immune system. They thought that it was like humans and you have your immune system through your umbilical cord and in cows that's not the case. Their, their immune system is absorbed from their mom's colostrum. That's how they get their antibodies until their immune system is functioning and then those maternal antibodies start to decrease and their own uh, internal antibodies start to increase and that's the calf's immune system. So let's talk about how we get colostrum now is that we can milk out mom or we can rely on uh, alternative sources like from dairy cows, but it's a very expensive, laborious process. There's always the potential for cross-contamination with diseases like mycoplasma and not... and, and, and it's hard to guarantee which antibodies are in there, that there's enough protective antibodies for us to have this measurable effect when we're using supplemental colostrum within a production setting. So we started talking about colostrum with this girl whose specialty was essentially the ability to create antibodies. She could just, you tell her what antibody to make and she can just make really cheap antibodies. She says they're the easiest thing in the world to make. So, you can have such a real-world positive benefit to making colostrum better quality, more suitable, more tailored, customized, and 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 more affordable using using cellular agriculture. You could print out custom antibodies. You could print out the fats. You could print out uh, the the proteins. You could print out the even the hormones and have this super high quality product where you could even like order, I want Corona, Rota, BVD, and IBR uh, colostrum. And then you just go to a clinic and they make your little synthetic uh, colostrum pouch up for you and you take that home and you feed that to your calf. That could decrease calfhood mortality and morbidity by orders of magnitude having technologies like that. Or the ability of what I saw one thing was, or one guy talking about was genome sequencing. Having a, a handheld genome sequencer where you could literally just touch the sequencer to a cow's snot and get a full genomic profile of all the microbiome that is in that calf's snot, including what type of genes are in that microbiome as well. So you could scan cattle in real time and scan their snot and see that, oh, this calf has manheimia that has telathromycin resistance, and you could treat him with a different antimicrobial. You could manage that calf differently. Just so many different steps within these, these processes. Uh, the ability to perhaps create even cheaper feedstocks, like the LJ guy. The LJ guy could make these amazing high-quality feedstocks using very simple base materials and decreased water and decreased land resources, and we could feed those to animals and make a really high-quality product. So instead of skipping, you know, skipping a step, skipping animal agriculture and going direct to consumer, this B2B opportunity, this business to business opportunity, because farmers are businesses, they're, they're not consumers. Having this B2B opportunity just seems like endless opportunity for these cellular agriculture companies to cash flow their businesses and to be able to have more and more resources for them to have research and development for them to continually improve on their on their ability to make good 
technology to make this fantastic science. So uh, these hopscotchers, it just seems like they're missing the boat. And I just walked away from the conference thinking animal agriculture needs cellular agriculture because these are these scientists are doing everything that we could be doing uh, to improve animal health and welfare. It, it made me, I seem, I started thinking in very frustrated terms when I was thinking about academia. You know, me as a private practitioner, I'm always waiting towards a, academia to see what they're going to come out with, waiting for researchers within universities to have ideas and to prove them and to publish. And that's so incredibly slow. And even corporations like the, the established corporations, if I'm looking towards pharmaceutical companies to come out and give me the next and best, greatest technology that I'm going to be utilizing in my feed yards or my cow-calf operations, I'm going to be waiting forever and they're going to have to prove that these models work and they're going to have to have all of their liabilities covered off. But these startup companies, these startup companies are so nimble, they're so fast, they're so smart, they have these, they're, they're just like the next generation and problem solvers. Those are the types of people that I see animal agriculture potentially lining with to help propel this industry into the next generation. I felt so frustrated being in the cattle industry and watching the grain side, like the grain production side, just skyrocket past us and their ability to utilize technologies, precision agriculture, so the ability to do variable rate seeding, variable rate fertilizer applications, daily satellite imagery, weather stations, knowing exactly which variety of, of canola seed to plant on which specific field based off of predictive algorithms and machine learning. It's just like, I want more. I want this technology. I want to be able to apply technology to animal egg. So animal egg needs cellular agriculture for us to get better in leaps and bounds. And cellular agriculture needs animal egg to be able to to support what they're doing, to be able to buy into the technology, to to piggyback on the goodwill and trust that the that the farming profession has garnered over the last 12,000 years. To, to skip past that goodwill, to skip past that trust, and to bring a product to market without farmers, I feel like is, is foolish, is folly. There's so much that can be learned on both sides. I had wished that I could just spend time with every single company, just four hours, just explaining exactly what animal agriculture is and what our challenges lie and how their technology could potentially be applied to solving the problems that we have and continuing that forward they're going to be able to have real world products to market and have viable businesses yeah that's my overall rant with that so I think it, it certainly sparked a lot of really good discussion one thing that I was I don't know. I guess I was surprised of after my talk. And so, uh, so I spoke to this. Uh, part of the thing I also spoke about was the, the wording, the verbiage, the language around this. So I'll talk about that next. But after my talk, the, the closet farmers came out of the woodwork in droves. It was like, I, I don't, I don't want to like elevate myself in, in any means, but but after I kind of spoke to what animal agriculture was in front of this group, uh, it was like these producers, these, these farmers that were in the crowd for a variety of different reasons, 
they came out of the woodwork. They felt like they had a voice. They felt like now they could be part of the conversation. And I met so many. I met uh, a girl who represented a venture capitalist. She had this super high power job. I think she was like an MBA. She was an FFA. She was a farm girl and she was there representing the interests of her clients. And she just wanted to say hello. And, uh, you know, she understands where I'm coming from. Uh, There was a representative, a couple of representatives from the Dairy Farmers of America. I applaud the Dairy Farmers of America for sending delegates there. I'm, I'm really disappointed in the beef industry for not having the foresight that the Dairy Farmers of America had for sending delegates to conferences like this to have a seat at the table, to be part of that conversation. There was a, a couple of fellows from the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, so they're, they're, they left their Washington, D.C. desk jobs to come down to the conference or come up. I get confused in American geography. Come up to the conference and they were farm boys. They were young farm boys that were working within government and they came to say hello. And I was really enthused to see that that people within that regulatory environment uh, had that type of background. I met a meat scientist from Texas, a guy super passionate about all things meat science, uh, just like a good old boy just lots and lots of people. Uh, there was a, a professor of philosophy uh, from the department of, I think it was like psychiatry. I'm butchering his title, but like farm boy, his dad loves running cattle. He's working at the university of Mississippi. He's not part of that environment anymore, but one of his jobs is just think about the, the, the future food. And he understands his dad's a, just a good old boy from Mississippi and that runs 30 cows and he, he gets it. So there were so many people who were, who were part of that, that, that understood where we are coming from and believed what I believe that together, these two technologies, this old establishment of animal agriculture, that's feeding the world can teach so much to these new up and comers. But then on the flip side, these new up and comers have this speed, this, this, um, intelligence, this ability to apply technology in new ways that we've never seen before. So then around the wording of what cellular agriculture is, and that, that was an interesting conversation because I want to be able to talk to you guys about what cellular agriculture is. So this is what the typical conversation is when I talk to my farmers about cellular agriculture. So, hey, Farmer Jim, going out to, uh, to Cambridge next week. Oh, yeah, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to be speaking at a cellular agriculture talk. Blank stare. Uh, Have you ever heard of lab-grown meat? I hate using the word lab-grown meat, but it's like the most descriptive and people kind of understand what I'm talking about. And then they're like, yeah, ew. I'm like, well, it's not like lab-grown meat. It's more like like grown in a bioreactor, like beer. You, you know, like those big stainless steel things? Yeah, so they use cells to grow different things. They can grow milk proteins. They can grow sugars. They can grow meat. They can grow a lot of different things. And I don't know what to call it. 
uh, cultured meat certainly has taken taken hold. There's the term Franken meat. That's not a very nice one. Clean meat. I spoke about this verbiage around clean meat. That one has taken off, especially by some of the larger companies like Memphis Meats. They use clean meat as part of their marketing strategy. And I take offense to the term clean meat because as a beef cattle veterinarian working with my amazing farmers, we do such a... uh, amazing amount of hard work to make sure that this is clean meat that that conventional agriculture meat is clean meat that we adhere to strict meat withdrawals that we do everything within our possibility that these animals are free and clear of antibiotics that i that people understand what growth promoting hormones are and how a implanted steak has has two nanograms extra estrogen versus a non-implanted state an almost physiological uh, non-significant amount of estrogen in it that we do significant uh, different things both in the raising of animals but also the shipping the slaughter the processing to reduce the amount of bacterial contamination we do so much hard work that that to then be compared to another product is clean meat seems very inflammatory it's it's marketing our product is a really great product as well and and to imply that it's dirty is is somewhat frustrating but i want to have i want to have the same verbiage across the board i want to be able to call it something jack bobo was talking about that maybe it should be called craft meat this kind of concept of this this locally grown um, regional flair craft sort of feel like the craft beer market maybe that's it maybe i don't know my position was why do we even have to really call it meat because that's the other conversation is 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 this meat does does the act of slaughter have to happen for this to be considered meat and that's what a lot of the lobby groups are going for is lobbying the the canadian government lobbying the u.s government to get the this product that does not come from an animal even though if it is is genetically identical to meat and phenotypically identical to meat that it is a piece of steak or a piece of hamburger and it was just grown in a different means that that is not meat i don't think that i think it is meat the the conversation though of getting the labeling under control is protectionist it's protectionist by the lobby groups that's what their job is is to protect the industry to protect the conventional industry it was no different than when soy milk came out uh, or when almond milk came out the dairy producers certainly didn't want the verbiage to imply that those products were milk They weren't really successful in being able to do that, even though there was a legal ruling that soy milk and almond milk cannot be called milk, and manufacturers continue to call it milk anyways. That is uh, now getting upheld a little bit better now that the meat lobbyists have been interfering in, not interfering, but have now been lobbying against this meat topic. The The whole milk topic has come up now, so it looks like the almond and the soy milk product makers might lose their ability to call it, to call it milk. I get the protectionist standpoint. 
we in the Canadian cattle industry live through kind of this protectionist mentality with the country of origin labeling that some groups within the U.S. wanted to protect the the consumer and to protect the the American cattlemen by making sure that all meat products that were derived outside of the country of the U.S. were labeled differently. So consumers would know that this was Canadian beef, that it wasn't U.S. beef. And that added a lot of legal problem, not legal problems, legal costs and a lot of manufacturing costs because then processors would have to have different lines, different labeling, different segmentation, and it just added a lot of complexity. So I get it. It's you're, you're trying to protect the integrity and the future of your industry by lobbying against whether or not you can call it meat or not. So we'll leave that with the regulators. We'll leave that with the voters. It'll be up to them to decide on the legality of it. And I just kind of argue that it probably doesn't matter in the end. So let's say I'm a clean, clean meat startup. I'm a cellular egg startup and I have this product and it's, um, Let's just say it's like a kippered beef jerky meat snack. It probably doesn't matter if I get to say the word meat on it. I'm going to stand behind what my product is. I'm going to stand behind my brand. I'm going to tell the story of my brand. And that was kind of a bit of a joke that I made at the conferences. It doesn't matter if it's called meat or it's called gym. As long as it's a good product and people know the story, it's you're going to be able to market it as gym or you're going to be able to market it as meat, or you're going to be able to market it as Neptune. Like, it, it doesn't matter what it's called. People align with brands. People align with really great products. So that's what I'd be focusing all my attention on and not really worrying whether or not you can call it meat on the label or not. So, yeah, I think that's about it on my wrap-up of the uh, New Harvest 2018 I am just super excited to continue relations forward with all of the different people that I met. I met, like I said, I'm. it just blows me away, the, the different backgrounds and the different type of people that I met. So I would love to be able to carry that conversation forward. I can't wait. I've, I've uh, had several people reach out to me wanting to carry that conversation forward. Uh, startup founders, people's in, people in regulatory, people in academia that, that just want to talk and, and have a conversation around that, uh, that topic of, of what this is and how agriculture can be part of that, how conventional animal agriculture can be part of this story, not eliminated by this story. So overall, I think that I'm still going to have a job as a beef cattle veterinarian. I don't think cows are going away anytime soon. And if cellular agriculture does take hold, I really, really hope that it will be integrated and just another technology, another part of the animal agriculture industry and for people within that space to recognize that they can make real world changes now in terms of improving that animal health and welfare and the environmental impact of, of animal agriculture they just need to recognize that that with that with us and with them we can make a real big difference together okay thank you guys for joining me and we will see you next time